The Forum and Workplace Inclusion's 2022 podcast series is sponsored by Best Buy. More diversity in tech means more ideas that can change the world. Learn more at bestbuy.com slash more of this. Registration is now open to the Forum's 34th annual conference, Solving for X, tackling inequities in a world of unknowns. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion Annual Conference is the United States' largest workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion conference designed for a national and global audience. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org for more information and to register. That's forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Thank you to all our listeners and subscribers. You help support the growth of the podcast and reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've already written a review, thank you. Please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or a colleague you think might find value in the content. Word of mouth is the best way the forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast series brought to you by Best Buy. I'm Ben Rue, Program Manager here at the Forum. We're really looking forward to today's podcast, identifying and addressing microaggressions with volunteers and other well-meaning people. With Wendy Vang Roberts of Minnesota Alliance for Volunteer Advancement, or MAVA for short, and Yishu Chen of the State of Minnesota Department of Human Services. Most volunteers are kind, amazing people who care about your cause and want to help others, so it's rare that they would blatantly or intentionally say or do something hurtful, but we all hold biases, some that we may not even be aware of. These are unconscious biases, and they can show up in the form of microaggressions, which can be challenging to address, especially with well-meaning people. In this episode, Wendy and Ishu will define and provide examples of microaggressions, discuss how they can show up in volunteer programs, and talk about the harmful effects they have. You will leave with strategies to navigate these conversations with your volunteers to create more inclusive spaces. Wendy Vang Roberts is the training manager at the Minnesota Alliance for Volunteer Advancement. In this role, she manages MAVA's trainings, annual conference, and the professional development and conference committees. Prior to joining the MAVA staff, Wendy served on MAVA's Inclusive Volunteerism Task Force and provided training on inclusive volunteer recruitment. She has worked in a variety of adult, student, volunteer, and national service outreach and recruitment roles. She most recently managed volunteer and adult learner outreach, coordinated support and professional development for volunteer coordinators and facilitated racial justice trainings for staff and volunteers at adult basic education programs statewide. Wendy holds a Master of Public and Nonprofit Administration from Metropolitan State University and serves on the Anti-Racism Study Dialogue Circles Metamorphosis Board and Marketing Committee and the Asian American Organizing Project Board. Ishu Chen, she, her pronouns, works as an equity and inclusion education specialist at the Department of Human Services in the Office of Equity and Inclusion. She provides equity and anti-racism trainings for state employees and helps provide institutional capacity to carry out anti-racism measures. Her background is in educational program management within the public and nonprofit sectors. She's interested in working with refugee communities and BIPOC youth, as well as mindfulness and somatic healing for racial justice. Thank you so much for joining us today for a conversation on microaggressions. 
My name is Wendy Vang Roberts. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the training director at the Minnesota Alliance for Volunteer Advancement, MAVA. We are a statewide nonprofit organization that supports nonprofit and government organizations to effectively use volunteers to achieve their goals. My role is to manage, develop, and facilitate professional development for volunteer engagement leaders across Minnesota and now beyond with our virtual capabilities. Our work and professional development offerings at MAVA includes volunteerism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. The two are woven together as all work should include a DEI lens. I believe volunteering is one way nonprofit and government organizations can build relationships with the community and engage community members in being a part of solving issues. But most volunteers and staff are not reflective of many of the communities receiving services. This creates a lot of challenges in providing culturally and linguistically appropriate services because who is going to know best about what a community needs than the community itself. So I'm very passionate about operationalizing equity and volunteerism to ensure community voices are represented in a way that works for community members. And a lot of this work includes training, storytelling, and creating spaces for meaningful dialogue to encourage and equip people to take action, which is why I got into the space of volunteerism and diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I'll go ahead and pass it over to my co-facilitator to introduce herself. Thanks so much, Wendy. So my name is Yishu Chen. Uh, I go by pronouns she, hers. And I work with the state of Minnesota as an equity and inclusion training specialist at the Department of Human Services uh, in the new office of equity and inclusion. Actually, we just opened about a month ago as a new office within the, the DHS um, departments. So my background is actually in civic and community engagement as well as educational program management design. So I've worked primarily in nonprofit sector, but also in public and charter schools. I'm so excited to be here today with Wendy. We've co-facilitated and collaborated on a number of projects and presentations. So this is actually a really great reunion um, for me to be able to work with you, Wendy. And I've actually always really appreciated your insights and working with you as well. I think that our styles really mesh well together and we just really align in many of our values, especially regarding equity and justice. Also, as uh, a fellow Asian American woman, we share many commonalities in the ways that uh, others behave around us and treat us here in Minnesota. So we share a lot of stories and, and bond around that. Um, and really, I'm here today to talk about this topic of microaggressions because it's really important to bring more awareness to a phenomenon that happens so frequently in our everyday lives and interactions with others and institutions. Um, and so oftentimes these microaggressions are committed without acknowledgement of any wrongdoing. And furthermore, there are no repercussions to the offending party. Actually, I feel that the term microaggressions has become what a, somewhat of a buzzword um, in the last three to five years, would you say? And really something that many BIPOC or, BIPOCs or groups who experience marginalization experience um, so casually on an everyday basis, but really is not normal or should be considered quite harmful actually. So I'm prepared to share some of these personal stories 
of times I've experienced microaggressions to bring more awareness to how they operate and just the toll that it takes emotionally and mentally on an individual. So with that, I hand it off to you, Wendy. Thanks, Ishu, and thank you for all your kind words. I love and appreciate working with you too. And I'm so proud of the work that we've been able to accomplish together over the last few years. And I'm so excited to be here with you today to talk about microaggressions, to talk about how they show up, the impact that they have on those who experience them, and really thinking about action. What are ways we can address microaggressions? So let's kind of dive right in. I think at this point, more people are aware of microaggressions than they have been in the past. And like you said, issue, it's sort of become a buzzword. I remember being in a workshop less than two years ago as a participant, and the presenter was talking about microaggressions and had shared some real life examples of people's experiences of microaggressions. And then they put us into small groups to talk about them. There were four of us in this group, and all of my group members said that they had never heard of microaggressions before or of the examples that the presenter had shared. I was the only person of color in this group. And my immediate thought was, okay, I'm about to be put in the position of the educator and I just wanted to be here to listen and learn. But I wasn't surprised. Two years ago, I didn't feel like many people were having conversations about microaggressions or diversity, equity, and inclusion. This would all change after the murder of George Floyd. It's great that more people are having these important conversations, but one thing I feel still goes unnoticed and unchecked is microaggressions. Why is this? And to answer this question, we're gonna start with what exactly are microaggressions? Dr. Daryl Wingsu, who is an author and professor of psychology, and he does a lot of work on race, he and his colleagues define microaggressions as verbal and nonverbal slights and insults, whether intentional or unintentional, that demean, insult, or invalidate a person and remind culturally marginalized groups that they are outsiders. So I want to revisit that term, culturally marginalized groups. Who am I talking about? This includes, but is not limited to women, Black Indigenous people of color, BIPOC, people with disabilities, older adults, LGBTQ plus individuals, and many more groups. Microaggressions are the result of the biases we carry with us, and it's important to keep in mind that anyone can commit a microaggression because we all hold biases. Microaggressions are very prevalent in our society. Sometimes they're so automatic, they may seem very normal or innocent. This is what makes it difficult to notice and address, especially for those who are not directly experiencing the microaggression. Some verbal examples of microaggressions include things like asking someone, where are you from? Telling someone, stop acting like a girl. You don't look gay. I can't believe you haven't traveled to Venice yet. And there are also nonverbal examples, which are behavioral. This includes things like a woman shares an idea she has at work and she's ignored by her coworkers who are men. A white person clutches their bag closer as a person of color walks by. A cashier rolls her eyes when a blind person approaches the register. A teacher shows surprise when a student shares that they are a lesbian. 
Another nonverbal form of microaggressions is environmental microaggressions. This includes things like a university only has buildings named after white men, a scarcity of women working as aircraft pilots, exclusion of LGBTQ plus perspectives and experiences and curriculum, and native themed mascots, nicknames, and logos. So hopefully you now have an understanding of what we're talking about when it comes to microaggressions. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Isha to talk about its origins and to dig a little deeper into the definition. Thank you for that, Wendy. So honestly, I can imagine microaggressions were happening since time immemorial. I mean, can't you imagine since people were able to communicate, they used their communication as a tool to exclude or alienate others they thought were quote unquote different to try to reaffirm their sense of superiority and place of power in society. So Dr. Chester M. Pierce, a prominent African-American Harvard-trained psychiatrist, was the first to, to describe these covert acts of microaggressions in the 1960s. He defined microaggressions as, quote, black, white, racial interactions that are characterized by white put-downs done in an automatic, pre-conscious or unconscious fashion. To be black in America means to be socially minimized. It is designed to put blacks in their place. The incessant lesson that the blacks must hear is that he is insignificant and irrelevant, end quote. So psychologist Dr. Daryl Dwinsu since that time has expanded upon Pierce's work, saying that microaggressions can happen between groups and institutions to other groups and individuals. So microaggressions should, be should not be confused with macroaggressions, which include blatant forms of racism. So think about physical beatings, cross burnings, lynchings. So you get the picture. Microaggressions are considered commonplace and small. Therefore, when they do happen, they fly under the radar. And when confronted, the person committing the microaggression can deny that they ever happened, adding onto the stress of those who were harmed by them. However, the term microaggression is misleading since there's really nothing micro about them. Microaggressions culminated over time can lead to severe psychological and emotional harm to an individual, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So microaggressions are the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights that are experienced by those who experience marginalization in society. In many cases, these hidden messages may invalidate the group identity or experiential reality of the target persons, demean them on a personal or group level, communicate they are lesser human beings, suggest they do not belong, and used to threaten and intimidate them. Um, you can think about microaggressions as part of a tree. So at the root of this tree are the institutions, are the ideologies rather, that uphold microaggressions. So think patriarchies, think white supremacy, think uh, capitalism. So at the level of the trunk are the institutions that stem from these, these ideologies. So think uh, the financial system, think education, think criminal justice system, uh, transportation, so on and so forth. So within these institutions, you get the branches are the leaves that stem from the branch or from the trunk. 
So these are where the microaggressions live. Um, and these are also manifestations of these biases and these prejudices um, and also racism of, this, of the institutions. Um, so they're more than just these insignificant trivial snubs. They actually stem from systemic discrimination. Uh, which are harmful to groups who ex already experience marginalization on many different levels. Basically, racial, gender, and sexual orientation microaggressions are just these active manifestations and a reflection of our worldviews of who's considered in, who's considered the outgroup or the other, who's considered superior and who's considered inferior, who's considered normal, and then who's considered abnormal. Wendy, you gave the uh, microaggression that's pretty common of when people express how surprised they are that someone is uh, identifies as gay or lesbian. But why is that so surprising, right? Especially in this day and age. So basically what the individual who committed the microaggression is implicitly saying is that, oh, being gay or lesbian is abnormal and therefore you're an other, you're um, you know, you're not part of this majority group and you're different and you should be treated differently and sometimes less than. And historically, yes, oppressed and um, excluded. So a lot of times these microaggressions happen on a very subconscious level. We get these messages from a very young age of who's considered in-group and who's considered out-group, who's considered other and who's considered the majority, right? Even if that majority is really a minority group. And so these biases become so embedded in the way that we view the world that they become automatic. And so we might consciously think of ourselves as really progressive individuals who um, are really tolerant or really open to other groups of people who are different than us. But we've already had these messages so ingrained in our education. Uh, we learn them from our families. We learn them from um, different institutions that we belong to, maybe a church. And so over time, they just become so ingrained in our psyches that they become automatic responses to um, other people. So um, that's a little bit about the origins as well as where microaggressions stem from. Wendy, why don't you lead us in a conversation of how they operate in everyday work situations? Thanks, Yeshu. I love the example you shared of the tree to talk about the roots of microaggressions and how they show up. That's such a great illustration of what we're trying to talk about. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit deeper about the impact of microaggressions and then talk about how this shows up, specifically giving you some examples from my own line of work. For the people who experience microaggressions, they really take a psychological toll. According to Dr. Sue, when a microaggression happens, the victim is usually placed in a catch-22, which is a difficult circumstance with no escape. They may ask themselves questions like, did that really just happen? How should I respond? If I bring it up, how do I even prove that it happened? And is it really worth my time? They can choose to do nothing 
I will be honest and share that I struggle with this. And sometimes I don't speak up, but then I get mad at myself for not saying anything because now that person thinks that what they just did to me is okay. And they might go and do the same thing to someone else. So I feel responsible for letting this harm continue. And this all feels like a loss of integrity. And then there's also this pent up frustration and anger. I can't tell you how much time I've spent feeling upset about a microaggression I experienced. There have been days where I skipped meals or lost sleep because I was so upset. Now imagine this happening over and over for a lifetime. You're constantly on alert. It all adds up and takes psychological tolls on people. And I believe your mental health impacts your physical health and overall well-being. Dr. Alvin Poussant caused this death by a thousand nicks. Sure, a, a few cuts might be no big deal, but what about a thousand of them? So the alternative to doing nothing is to respond, but one runs the risk of negative consequences for, for speaking up. It can lead to an argument, getting let go from your job, losing out on that promotion or raise, or as we've seen throughout our history in the United States, the loss of life when one chooses to speak up. I want to talk about how this shows up in my work in volunteerism, and one example I'll share is working with volunteers who commit microaggressions. First, I believe that volunteers are really kind, amazing people who care about causes and want to help others. They see what's going on in the world. So in my experience, it's pretty rare that a volunteer would explicitly say something hurtful. But we all hold biases, some, we may, some that we may not be aware of. These are unconscious biases and they can show up in the form of microaggressions, which can be really challenging to address, especially with well-intentioned well folks. Also, in my time working in nonprofits and in volunteer engagement, I would hear from colleagues about volunteers or board members committing microaggressions many times directly about or toward clients. Things like a volunteer assuming that some, everyone wearing a hijab is of the same exact ethnic group or denying the experiences of someone by questioning the credibility of their stories. And my colleagues would describe what happened, and then they would sometimes say something along the lines of, but I don't think we can address it because the volunteer has been here for 16 years, or they're a donor, or I don't want them to quit because I really need volunteers. And I get this, because we need more resources in nonprofits. So I know where this comes from. I'm also working on dropping my scarcity mindset. I have been so guilty of this for so long. The nonprofit industrial complex is a whole other conversation. But psychologists actually say that a scarcity mindset demonstrates a fixed mindset in which one believes that things are carved in stone. As people who work in nonprofits, in government, we can't fall into thinking that things can't change because our whole job is to meet community needs, and that requires us to change to continue to meet those needs as communities change. And secondly, I believe that we are doing everyone a huge disservice when we don't address and have conversations about bias and microaggressions. And this harms the very communities we are supposed to be helping. And oftentimes, I find that volunteers who commit microaggressions actually want to know about it because they want to do better. They care about your cause and who you are providing services to, which is why they are there, and they want to do their best. 
I sometimes get pushback when I say this. I've had participants in the DEI workshops I present say something along the lines of people could get upset and leave if I brought up microaggressions. And we have to ask ourselves, honestly, do we really want someone in our organization who is harming who we provide services to and others with marginalized identities? Is that someone you want representing your organization? We can try to bring people along, and some of that happens through conversations and trainings, but at some point we have to be willing to say to someone that we're moving toward equity and justice and we'd like you to join us in this work, but we understand if this isn't your time. We hope to see you again when you're ready. I like this explanation from Dr. Sue in his book called Race Talk and the Conspiracy of Silence. In this, he talks about having conversations on race, but this concept can be applied across the board. He says, the inability or reluctance to dialogue openly and honestly leads to a lack of, a lack of checks and balances to worldviews. It A, lowers empathic ability, B, dims perceptual awareness and accuracy, C, lessens compassion for others. D, leads to self-denigration and a sense of failure. And E, allows many to live in a world of false deception about the nature and operation of oppression and their complicity in the perpetuation of silence. To me, he is saying that there is a true psychological loss that people with privilege and power are actually experiencing when they don't have real, authentic, honest conversations about oppression and injustices. And later on, we'll talk about addressing microaggressions and having these difficult conversations. Ishi, what are your thoughts about the impact of microaggressions and how they operate in organizations? Thank you so much, Wendy, for um, that explanation, those explanations of how microaggressions, microaggressions uh, operate in real life. Uh, they ring so true to my own understanding and my own experiences of microaggressions. So a study by Melissa L. Wallace in 2015 analyzes microaggressions in American Indian healthcare found a correlation between those who experienced microaggressions with worsening mental and physical health symptoms. So in this report, over one third of the sample reported experiencing a microaggression in interactions with the healthcare providers. They reported that these microaggressions um, were linked to worse depressive symptoms uh, prior year hospitalization, increase in chronic stress, as well as risk for the onset of traumatic stress symptoms and depression. So really microaggressions, again, I want to emphasize the fact that they might be called microaggressions, but that is a misleading label because they have pretty severe, or they can have pretty severe um, physical and mental health outcomes. Um, so just an example of how microaggressions have uh, showed up in my professional life. Uh, I'll just tell one story. So I had a counterpart at the same level uh, as me at the place I used to work at, at one place I used to work at rather. I don't wanna you know, uh, state which one, but uh, she was a middle class white woman I remember that we would sometimes make the same points or announcements to the group or staff. 
and I would notice that the staff would be much more uh, attentive to the things that she was saying versus when I was saying the same points. And they would react with so much more enthusiasm to when she said it versus when I said it. And they were more likely to remember when she said it versus when I said it. And I would have to repeat myself repeatedly, which was pretty frustrating, if you can imagine. Um, so I thought that maybe I was overreacting, that I was imagining things because no one had, uh, no one seemed to also notice this. Um, so mm -hmm. I ignored it for a long time until a BIPOC staff member came up to me and told me one time that they did notice this and they thought it was troubling and it really deterred them from wanting to speak up during meetings because they saw that I was treated this way. So you see the consequence of experiencing this microaggression or <clears throat> micro invalidation is profound because it doesn't only affect me, but it affects other BIPOCs who see this mistreatment mm -hmm. and it they've internalized that this is their place and that, you know, because I've experienced this, they also don't want to experience this. Um, Rightly so, I mean, I understand that as well, um, but this is really just a harmful impact of microaggressions. Uh, in my personal life, uh, this actually just happened last week. So my son goes to a predominantly white uh, preschool and, you know, preschoolers are always sick. They have running noses um, pretty mm -hmm. frequently. Actually, his pediatrician told me that Throughout his preschool life, uh, it's very common that he will always have a runny nose. And I understand during the age of COVID, we really need to be more vigilant. I get that, right. which is why I took all the precautions necessary um, and I used the decision tree. I consulted with his pediatrician, the school nurse. I made sure he was COVID negative with a test before sending him to school. The teacher asked my husband, does he have a runny nose? Uh, my husband responded, yes, my child does once in a while. The teacher said, okay, well, I would like for him to go home uh, because he has a runny nose. My husband was not about to argue that. He went home. <clears throat> the next week he brought uh, our child back to school. The teacher noticed that he still had a runny nose. Um, even though we took all the precautions necessary to make sure that uh, it wasn't communicable, that he wasn't contagious. And she still told us that we couldn't come back to class until the runny nose symptoms cleared up. And my husband then noticed that the teacher did not ask any of the other parents in the classroom um, and that some of the children actually did have runny noses. And there was actually a handful of students who were not wearing masks, even though the policy clearly states that there's a masking policy. Um, and in fact, these children were not wearing masks for the whole duration of the school year so far. So why was there this differential treatment towards my child versus the other children who happened to be primarily white? Um, so is it a coincidence? Um, I think not, right? I think this is a clear example of a microaggression. And really, the consequences can be quite large. If you think about the amount of schooling that my son missed because 
he was told to stay home by his teachers or that he was um, not deemed fit to be in school because of his sickness. Um, even though the pediatrician and the school nurse had cleared him to come back to school, mm -hmm. um, that puts him behind in terms of academics. Right. I know that he's only in preschool, but he is missing out on valuable social emotional learning skill sets that he's going to need for mm -hmm. school once in kindergarten, um, mm -hmm. which I think is is pretty sad and it's it's very heartbreaking to see that happening to my child. Yeah, thank you for being willing to share your experiences and stories with us, Ishu. And they really demonstrate the amount of time and energy that the folks that experience microaggressions really have to put into these situations, right? You're led to believe that, oh, it's probably in my head or I'm making things up. That's what folks who experience microaggressions have been led to believe their entire lives is that the problem is with them instead of, no, these issues are um, far deeper than what you are as an individual are, are doing. And it's not on the person who has experienced those micro the microaggressions. Thanks for sharing. Thank you so much. And you know, what makes these microaggressions even more hard to address is that they're so ubiquitous and easily denied um, because they're so normalized, right? And they're so hidden mm -hmm. within um, other aspects of white supremacy in our societies, such as policies and rules and regulations. I mean, the mm -hmm. teacher could easily point to policy, which she did, um, to try to support her point or her position. Um, but that's part of the problem as well. There's so many layers to this, Wendy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one question as you were speaking issue made me think one question I get a lot when I do diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings or when I facilitate them is um, someone told me I committed a microaggression. How do I know it's really a microaggression? And my response to this is pretty simple. If a person thinks it's a microaggression, it's a microaggression. Believe the person when they tell you this, not because people with marginalized identities are automatically infallible, but because first, we all go everywhere with our identities and our histories, our lived experiences. For example, when I walk through the door to go to work, to go to the store, to go to a party, I can't leave my racial identity at the door. I bring my racial identity and my history along with me everywhere I go. So what may seem like a simple one-time question or comment to you, like asking someone, where are you from? Or do you speak English? Maybe something the person has been asked and have had to navigate their entire life. I know that when I hear these types of questions, I know immediately that the person is likely asking because of the way I look. Asians are treated as perpetual foreigners. Secondly, think about the courage the person had to have to tell you that you committed a microaggression. Our society does not make it easy for people to speak up. So I would argue that there is a good chance that it might not have been the first time that you have committed that microaggression. And the person who experienced it finally said, enough. What you're hearing from the person in that moment when they tell you that what you just said or did is a microaggression is only the tip of the iceberg of the pain and trauma that people with marginalized identities carry. 
It's important to embrace self-awareness, and you can do this by stopping to recognize and reflect on your own biases, on your interactions and your behaviors, and by asking yourself, why did I think, say, or do that, and what am I making assumptions about? Um, and then lastly, it's important to acknowledge the impact we have had when we make mistakes, to learn from it, and to commit to doing things differently in the future. And keep in mind that when people give us feedback, they're giving us an opportunity to learn and grow. Yeah, I mean, those are such great points, Wendy. And um, I see a lot of times people get really fixated on this good-bad binary, right? Mm -hmm. So author Robin DiAngelo often talks about this in the context of race, like you're either a racist or you're this quote unquote good person who's free of racism, right? But really the studies show that's not true at all. We all carry bias. We all carry racial bias um, more specifically. And that's because of the way that we've been socialized as a society. Um, we are embedded in a sea of white supremacy. So it's really hard to think that we're free of that, especially if we've been swimming in it our whole lives. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not great. It's not good. And it shouldn't be considered normal that we uh, commit these racial microaggressions. But um, really, you can kind of expect that. And um, I know myself that I've committed many microaggressions in my life um, because of the way that I've been schooled, my upbringing, um, media, so on, so forth. So when people tell me, okay, well, I was offended by that. Um, when you said that word, um, or you gave me that look, um, a lot of times I jump into that space of uh, defensiveness, but I understand now that that's a knee-jerk reaction and that I just need to take a breath and understand that, yes, I too am guilty of this. You know, even as an equity trainer, I am guilty of this as well. And just step back and be like, wow, this is an opportunity for me to grow and to be better. And mm -hmm. for them to tell me this took a lot more courage on their part than it does for me to say, hey, you know what, you're right, and I'm sorry, and I'll do better, and this is how I'm going to do better, and commit to that. Um, so that mm -hmm. takes us into how do we address and call people in when they've committed microaggressions. So Diane J. Goodman, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, has a toolkit that can be found online. So if you search Diane Goodman, and also responding to microaggressions and bias, which is a downloadable PDF. There are many examples of how you can uh, respond to microaggressions. <clears throat> so I'm gonna just list off a few points. Uh, there are several there as well. So I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, so one of them is to share your own process. So, an example of a microaggression is uh, when you have a African-American colleague who has um, many people who are interested in touching their hair or just a fascination in general with their hair is something that I've quite frequently heard. Um, so if I see a colleague trying to touch my fellow colleagues who happens to be African-American hair, 
I can uh, pull that individual uh, who committed that microaggression to the side and I could say, hey, I noticed that you are really fascinated with uh, this colleague's hair. And sometimes we'll ask to touch it. Um, so I used to do that too. And, you know, I understand that you might be fascinated, you might think it's different and interesting. But really, when you do that, you're singling that person out, you're making them feel like they could be touched, that their um, boundaries can be uh, invaded upon. And really, that's just something that's not appropriate, especially in this space, um, or anywhere for that matter. So really, um, I would suggest not doing it. And here's some resources for you to look into. Um, and just really just share your own process of how you've done that before and how you've grown from that. <clears throat> it's, it might be able to open the door to have a conversation. Um, second point, separate intent from impact. <clears throat> so something that I've gotten, a comment that I've gotten personally in the past is, do you eat meat or dog meat? Does your family or do all Asians eat dog meat? Which is a common stereotype um, that really drives me crazy. Um, so something that I can say to address this is that, hey, you know what? I know that you didn't realize this, but when you asked me if Asians eat dog meat, it was really hurtful and offensive because this is a stereotype that many Asians, in fact, um, most people, don't fall into. And in fact, I love dogs. You know, I've had a dog before, in fact. Um, and so instead, you could ask what kind of foods that we like to eat or I like to eat as an individual. And I understand that maybe your intention um, was that you're just curious and you just want to clarify in your own mind, but the impact is really harmful that because uh, that made me feel um, like stereotyped. So a third example of what you could do to address microaggressions is to just challenge the stereotype. Um, so to just give information, to share your own experience and or offer an alternative perspective. So for example, I heard a classmate once say that all Mexicans are lazy. And this was actually when I was still in middle school. I was very awkward. Um, I didn't really know how to address situations like this, but I remember my teacher had overheard this conversation happening and jumped in. And she stated, actually, in my experience, that's not true. I think that's a stereotype. I've learned that all people, no matter where they're from or what their background is, can be lazy or hardworking or even a mixture of one or the other, depending on the context. And another way to look at it is you wouldn't want everyone in a group to be judged because of actions that one individual who belongs to that group uh, did, would you? And so I thought that was a really great example for me to see how someone is just standing up very firmly and very clearly to the stereotype and addressing it at the moment. Um, and so it takes a certain type of personality to do that. But I think flexing these muscles of addressing microaggressions will help lead us to that place where we can be 
very firm and uh, be very clear about why that microaggression was not cool. So those are just a few examples. Uh, there are so many different examples of how you can really be firmly um, pushing back against microaggressions. Um, but I definitely recommend this resource that you can find, out, find online. Again, Diane J. Goodman and look up Responding to Microaggressions and Bias, which is a downloadable PDF. Thank you. Thanks for sharing this um, information and resources with us, Ishu. I agree with you. Speaking up against bias is such an important aspect to this work, having these conversations with those around you, especially in the moment, and addressing things when they happen immediately. I like to think of this, and if you were thinking of this in terms of work and organization, um, think of this like supervision. If a employee has a performance issue, you wouldn't wait three months or a year to address it, hopefully. <laughs> you would want to let them know as soon as you could so that they could adjust and correct the behavior. And I agree with you, it's, it's hard. It's really hard and it can be scary. And if you're like me, when I hear biased remarks, I either freeze up and then later I'm like, this is what I should have said or my brain starts moving really fast and I'm like, okay, I have to think of the most perfect, profound thing to say to change this person's heart and mind and soul. And then I miss my moment. The conversation moves on or the meeting ends. And of course you can absolutely go uh, ask to come back to a topic later. That's, that's okay. There have been times where I've been like, hey, can we just go back to this conversation? And that is absolutely something that is, is okay to do. And I would encourage you to do if you end up missing your, your moment to respond, because there are definitely um, moments where you might feel totally knocked off your feet with what just happened or what had just been said. Um, one other tool I wanted to share um, with you is from Learning for Justice on Speaking Up Against Bias, and you can find this at learningforjustice.org, and then by searching Speak Up at School and click on the publication. This resource offers a few different techniques you can try in the face of bias. So the tool starts off with interrupt as one of the strategies. You can interrupt bias remarks, um, and Ishu talked about this earlier as well by saying something like, please don't say that, or that hurts my feelings, or I'm not feeling comfortable with what's happening right now. The next strategy is question. You can ask questions to find out why someone made an offensive comment, like, could you say more about what you mean when you say X, Y, and Z? They, this gives the person an opportunity to pause and reflect on what they just said or what they just did. The third strategy in this tool is educate. You can provide an explanation about why a term or expression is offensive. Someone might be saying something because they don't know the history behind the word. And the last strategy is echo. If someone else speaks up against bias, it is so powerful to have someone else reiterate the message. It can be as simple as, I noticed that too. Thank you for saying something. I'd like to talk about this too. So making sure to show allyship to the person who spoke up, because as we've talked about already, it's not easy and speaking up takes courage. Anything else to add to speaking up issue? Um, just as you said, you know, sometimes it doesn't look perfect. Does it look super profound? You know, 
you might not be able to uh, take that quote and put it on your wall that you just said, you know, like, and it's going to look bumpy and that's okay. You know, maybe you missed your moment at the exact moment to respond, but you brought up another really good point, Wendy, respond, you know, even if it's like a day later, even a week later, respond anyway. Um, you know, I think that I've experienced microaggressions and even though the person didn't respond at the moment, the fact that they responded meant a lot to me. And mm -hmm. so I tried to take that experience and see it in the bigger picture, you know, like we aren't perfect human beings. Uh, we all commit these microaggressions and these biases. We all have biases, but uh, we can work towards being better co collectively. And that's, that's how change happens, really. It starts with individuals. Yeah, so thank totally you so much agree. for your time, everyone. And this has been really great. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you, Ishi. It's always such a pleasure to get to work for, to get to work with you and to learn from you. And you have so such incredible, powerful stories and um, and resources to share with us. So I want to take a moment to also thank you for being here today. Thank you, Wendy. Likewise, this has been such a pleasure again working with you um, and doing so, something new. You know, like we yeah. now into our um, I know what's it called <laughs> our experience belt um, podcast check. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today for a conversation on microaggressions. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Wendy and Ishu, for this wonderful podcast. And thank you to our listeners and our sponsor, Best Buy. To learn more, please contact Wendy at wvangroberts at mavanetwork.org. New episodes of the Forum podcast are available at forumworkplaceinclusion.org forward slash podcast. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Stitcher. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.